during the green season, I say practically every Sunday that uh, the readings that we read are about discipleship, the cost, the ways and the means, and uh, the nature of Christian discipleship. And then from time to time, I get worried and nervous about not saying, what, is it, what does disciple mean? So just so that you can file this on ice, disciple means learner. It means learner. So in our culture, it's become extremely uh, uh, important, to, or you hear a lot, that's a better way to say it, uh, a lot about lifelong learning. Right? That lifelong learning is an important thing, and it's true. And my hope as a Christian pastor is that people understand that lifelong learning has something to do with learning about the deep things of Christian faith and belief so that you can feel more confident, more serene, and more focused with regard to how you live the Christian life at whatever place you find yourself uh, in your age or in terms of your life circumstances or whatever. So to some degree, uh, we mine these readings for finding ways to see how they have any relationship to what it is that we're doing in our Christian faith and life, or for that matter, life, because you've heard me say that the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. So spirituality is life. You know, it's not just some special kind of esoteric practice. It has to do with how you live your life and what it is you're able to do when you live it. So I'm going to preach on all the readings today. Some of what I'm going to say, uh, I said last week, particularly about the letter to the Ephesians, um, but they all have something to say to us, at least I think about this idea of lifelong learning and or being reminded of the things that are important. You know, all of us forget because we're busy and uh, we're focused on other things or sometimes we're just focused on stuff, right? So today from Second Sam, I've said this before, if you want to read the Bible, uh, it's some people read it from cover to cover, but you probably will get lost within the first two or three, you know, Genesis, uh, Exodus, you know. So one of the places to start in the Hebrew Bible maybe is First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, because they're interesting stories. And we're reading now in Second Samuel about King David, and David is one of the important figures in uh, understanding the history of salvation, because there were a lot of people alive at the time of Jesus who believed that when the Messiah came, it would be the restoration of the halcyon days of Israel, the great days of Israel. So it would take them back. They would see reproduced uh, in, in, in terms of the way things are uh, the days of David and Solomon, which they felt were the high point of the people of Israel. 
So David today in the story is sitting in a house of cedar. Things have calmed down. He's not in, in battle all the time now. And he's sitting in a house of cedar, thinking thoughts. Like we do. And what he's thinking is that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And it's an important thing. The Ark of the Covenant is a container for the Ten Commandments. And it's carried wherever they go, the tribes of Israel. And it was with them at the great battles and all of the great things that occurred. David now has the idea that if he's living in a house of cedar... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant ought to be in a house of cedar or some kind of permanent dwelling. And he tells this to the prophet Nathan. Now, Nathan is going to come up more than once. And the most famous one that we'll probably read soon is after David becomes involved with Bathsheba. Nathan is going to pay a call on David and he's going to give him the gears. And he tells them the story. I'll probably talk about this. He tells them the story of a man who was a shepherd and a very, had lots of sheep. And he had somebody come and he wanted to entertain him. So he went to a poor guy and he took his lamb and killed it for his guest. And David said, that's a terrible thing for somebody to do. That the person ought to be apprehended and, and executed. And Nathan says, you are the man. Right? You've heard that. That's a line that people say, you are the man. So he's going to have to face some things moving forward. But today, Nathan listens to him and sort of nods and he goes home. And Nathan, I think it's probably true of prophets, don't you? They maybe don't sleep too well because they're always thinking thoughts about how to be a pro prophesying or saying things that are, you know, so he comes back to see David and he said, you know, the Lord came to me in the night and he said, uh, I don't need or want a, a house, a permanent dwelling place. I have always been with you at the times that are important and I'm going to continue to be with you. And what I'm concerned about now, the Lord is saying, is the continuity of your family and the permanence and the stability of the kingdom of Israel. And I'm going to oversee this process and make you great. And maybe there'll be a time when I get to live in a permanent house. But now is not the time. So I'm thinking when I read this, it's a good story, but what sort of application might it have and maybe it's uh, reminding ourselves that God is not restricted to a place. The presence of God. Although we believe that God dwells in our holy buildings. I don't have any trouble with that. If you read the first chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew Bible, it has the creation story. And it talks about how God created the cosmos or created the heavens and the earth. And the language in the original language in Hebrew describes how you build a temple, really. People who heard that would say this is temple language that is being used here. 
So it's talking about the place where God dwells. And of course, God dwells in the creation. And we may say, well, we have buildings. And in the system that gets created out of this is that God worked for six days and on the seventh he rested. And where does he rest? He rests in his space. God's space. Right? So we're all together. So if you go inside St. Luke's Church, the way it's built, I always think sometimes of the apse where the six candles are behind. That's where God dwells. In the building. You can think in that sense, right? I don't mean to uh, load you with a lot of superstitious talk. (laughs) But it's possible that we can think that way. That's the place where God dwells, and we go once a week there, and we're all together. God is rested, and God is with us there in our holy places. And God is also everywhere, and most importantly, God is within each of you. That's your true self. And so that should give you great um, confidence that you're able to make a difference in the world. A disciple means a learner, and an apostle is somebody who is a messenger. And in the Bible, apostle is not merely restricted to the 12 apostles. It's many others are called apostles. And sometimes and in some places, the things we do for the church can be described as apostolic work. One of the most important apostolic tasks that is performed in all Episcopal churches is the work of the altar guild. It's very important. It may be in the top three, right? So it's something that is apostolic work that is important, and it carries the message in the sense that we wish to make the holy places orderly and prepared. So it's a good thing. In English, apostle got translated in all the old as emissary. And before that, in Latin, apostle was translated as missio, where we get the word missionary from. Just file these things on ice. You never know when they might come in handy when you're talking to somebody. Did you know? Right? Did you know? Yes? Last week on Jeopardy, there was a question about Uriah. Uriah. And if you had paid attention last week, you would have known the answer. That's right. Right. (laughs) So you're right. Just so you know, uh, we're coming up on uh, David meets Bathsheba or sees Bathsheba. Who is that? Who's that woman taking a bath down there? <laughs> Send her here. So he's afraid because that Bathsheba got pregnant and Uriah the Hittite was fighting uh, in David's army in the battles and he comes home and he says, oh, thank heavens. And so he said, you need to go home and, and see your wife. It's been a long time. <laughs> And he didn't realize that Uriah hit the Hittite was a strict constructionist, which meant that when you were in a holy battle, in a holy war, you did not have sexual intercourse. So he went down to his house and slept in the doorway. 
So King David says, what am I going to do? And, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll send him into the worst part of the fighting. And he does, and Uriah the Hittite gets killed. So enter the prophet Nathan, right? In any case, in this particular thing, we're, we're just reminded that it's important that God is, uh, can be seen as located and also is everywhere. It's sort of like quantum mechanics, right? Things are, if you want to find out where something is, you can't tell how it's moving. You either have to say it's here or you say it's moving, but not here. Say, I don't get that. I know it's very complicated, but in some ways very simple. Now, Ephesians. Uh, the right, there are many, when I was in seminary, what I was taught, and I guess most people, is that Paul did not write Ephesians. Paul was written by a disciple, uh, Ephesians was written by a disciple of Paul, and everybody should say, well, who cares? Or what's the difference? I was talking about a year ago or so to a parishioner who's a software engineer. And when uh, two people are working on a particular project and they're writing the software, they will sit there and compare what they're doing with their colleagues' work, and they'll talk about what's the diff? What's the difference between this and this? Right? So when we talk about Pauline authorship of the epistles, uh, the diff is that it gives us some idea of the continuity of Paul's teaching and the faithfulness of this teaching after Paul. So some people refer to the, the pseudonymous letters as heirs of Paul. How faithful were they and why would we worry about this? Because what's being talked about in these epistles is our changed circumstances. So how faithful is the church to the changed circumstances in which they find themselves? So last week I talked about the tension that existed in Paul's missionary work between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And in this passage, you can see by the way uh, the author is speaking, I say Paul, but some may not. The fact is, is that what's being described here is that this separation is now beginning to become less so. And so Gentiles and Jews are together in the Christian church. And Paul says, the law, if you're Gentile, you do not have to keep the law. If you're a Jew... You don't, you don't have to keep the law either unless you want to. What unites you with the Gentiles is belief in Christ. That's the thing that's important. Belief in Christ. And it levels those differences. Now, Paul in his life, probably when he was around uh, Gentiles, did not keep the law with great rigor. 
but there's no evidence that he ceased keeping it as a pious Jew either. And it just affords the opportunity, which may be a stretch to say, that when you talk about the law being abolished, it doesn't mean that the law is unimportant. And certainly Jesus is concerned to say that when we speak of the law, we need to have some conversation about the difference between the letter and the spirit. I think it's important to think those thoughts, particularly in our age, when there is absolutely no moral consensus of any kind in this country. It does not exist. And in some ways about these matters, everybody is a fundamentalist. Whether, whether you find yourself on the left or you find yourself on the right, there is no consensus. And there are many suggestions that exist, however, about how we get back to some idea of what it means to have a, a moral context. Uh, there are two articles, I don't have them in front of me, but I read about a month ago uh, by two young women who would be, I guess, in the sociology of this, millennials. And one of the articles is titled Christianity Without Christ. And the other one is, if you want to attract millennials, stop trying to be cool. <laughs> And both of these young women speak about the things that they've encountered in the church. As it turns out, at the end, they give themselves away because they say they go to the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Wonder of wonders. And I think one of them says something about the fact that, you know, uh, some of the things that happen in church are ways of providing for us a moral center that some of the other attempts at practicing Christianity don't seem to do. So you and I, because we're in a, most of the, in a liberal church, also think that uh, each individual makes their own morality. That's how that works, right? Now, I happen to believe that there are some things that are true and right to do, whether I believe they are or not. That's David Brewer. There are some things that are bigger than me, right? Even if I don't believe it or realize it, you know? And sometimes a lot of people get themselves all jammed up because they think it was all up to them, and then they get themselves in a situation where they realize this is where their best thinking has led them. Right? And then they say, gee... So when we think about the, the difference in the relationship between law and gospel, we need to have some kind of conversation about the nature of morality, Christian morality, the way in which we understand ourselves as moral beings. Do you know that there have been some studies, maybe you've seen those shows on PBS, that they're actually doing work with animals, and some animals seem to, to suggest by their behavior that they have a moral sense. You know? Now, the, the only reason I mention that is it's entirely possible that the whole of God's creation 
has an innate moral sense that's part of our hard wiring. You know, its specifics are rather vague and elusive, right? But it's possible that that is so. Any of you who've owned a dog know that dogs have a moral sense, in my opinion. That's special pleading on my part. <laughs> you know, but it's, it, it, it's true in my view. So Mark is, I read it and I think, what am I going to say and think about this? Jesus and the disciples and apostles, his, the people close to him, uh, I ha- the, some of them have returned, the apostles, it's more than 12, from a missionary journey. And they're reporting to Jesus the success or failure of what it is they were doing. And so he's speaking with them about all of this. And they're exhausted. They're exhausted from the journey and from their work. And they're exhausted uh, because the crowds won't leave them alone. They're constantly being harried by the crowds. So Jesus says, let's go off to a deserted place and spend some time together. Maybe this is a biblical gospel explanation of the origin of a retreat, right? We need to go to a quiet place and decompress for a while. So they get in the boat and they go, and somebody gets word in these crowds that they're going over there, and they all follow them, and they're there when they get there. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they're here and they look at all these people. And Jesus says they look like they're sheep without a shepherd. And there's nothing to do but meet their needs or attempt to do this. So, what's not in today's gospel. Uh, because we're waiting next week for this, they excise from Mark the feeding of the 5,000, which follows in this story. So it's an example of God's abundance providing for the people, but here it's merely answering the issue of people's spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental yearning. And how do we meet that as apostles? and uh, the Savior of the world, who healed many people, it says there. And some touched his garment and were healed in the story. So I'm thinking thoughts once again about uh, busy people. We spend a lot of time, particularly in the Silicon Valley, in an absolute maelstrom of stuff to do and of distraction and of demand and for often many important things, you know. So the great question is, how do you find balance in the midst of all that? And maybe one of the ways is merely to read in this text that Jesus is suggesting that they go off to a quiet place. So you can go off to a quiet place physically, but you can also learn how to do that uh, internally, right? How do you find the time uh, to uh, rest in God? You know, there's two ways to do that. One of them is sort of an active way where you're thinking 
when you're sitting with God, you're praying to God, you're talking to God. Uh, it's the, the type of meditation was what I was taught in seminaries called discursive meditation. Discur- discourse, right? Like reading a biblical passage and then thinking about where you are in the scene and talking to God about what resolution I have from this. Or the other way to do it is just to sit and listen for the still small voice that you know is not your own. You know? Father Keating says what you learn as you do this, we have to keep in mind all of the findings of, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology or uh, human development. When we are born, we all of a sudden realize there's, uh, there's others. There's the world, and there's us, and then we r- recognize me more and the other, and in the spiritual life it's that, and then as you do this, you come to the place where there is no other, the capital O. You and the other are one with a capital O. And if that's true, then you can understand what Father Keating means when he said, we are not God, but our true self is God. And that's, that's real progress because you begin to realize that you can look at things uh, in, in a way that's different and you can make a difference. So I guess the thing to do this week is to remind yourself that God is everywhere in you, most importantly, and you can't confine God always to one location. Uh, Know, too, that uh, all apostles and disciples are called to practice peace and reconciliation and healing in the world. And if you feel yourself incapable of doing that or the order is too large, uh, maybe you need to scale down your expectations. Right? Maybe you need to see uh, that you're called to to do this in a very ordinary, commonplace way. You know, not to think in heroic terms always. That's always a risk, you know. I heard somebody say the other day that expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. <laughs> right? I've never felt like that. <laughs> Please. So understand uh, the seriousness of your call. Right? To be a, he- a healer, a reconciler, and a person of peace. It's absolutely essential. Amen. Amen.